Okay, um, we are going to continue our mini-series. We are in the middle, we were preaching through John, and we're entering a mini-series for the next couple of weeks on the mystery of life change, a human obsession, right? Okay, so I want you to meet some friends. The, the people that I'm going to introduce you to uh, are real people. I've just changed their names, and they're nobody in here. Of course, I would never do that. Meet Sue. Uh, Sue grew up in the church. She's never known a day that she hasn't known and trusted Jesus. Never known a day. Growing up in the church, she often thought her story of God's grace in her life was, well, boring. Uh, first, she didn't have the drug dealer turned youth leader conversion story. Second, uh, most of her Christian life up to this point, she hasn't really struggled with really bad things and bad sins. And all her struggles up to this point, if they were, if there were things that she struggled with, it was nothing that a little extra self-discipline, a little extra willpower, a little more Bible reading, a little more prayer, and a little more regular church attendance could fix. Which brings us to today. Today she's overwhelmed with absolutely painful feelings and emotions of being lost. The little extra effort is no longer working for her. Uh, the self-discipline and the willpower is no longer restraining her anger. Bible study is no longer suppressing her rising uh, romantic desires and fantasies. Praying and going to church is no longer curing and healing her stress levels, and her high anxiety. She wonders, Sue wonders, what is wrong with me? What's happening to me? Has God left me? Has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Am I all alone now? Meet Sam. Sam has always felt there must be something more in the Christian life. Sam has always felt that there's something better out there, something bigger, something brighter. He has always sensed deep in his gut that there's something more immediate, something more life-changing, something more impacting. If he could just discover it, if he could just find it, if he could just learn it, if he could just tap into it, if he could just actualize it. In college, he was a dynamic leader of one of the largest campus ministries on, on the campus. When he graduated, no one was surprised that he was being called to ministry. Absolutely no one. But he still couldn't shake. There must be something more to the Christian life. Fast forward 10 years into pastoral ministry. Someone says, Sam, do you want to know more about the something more in the Christian life? His ears perked up, and he said, oh, you bet I do. And they got together regularly, and it changed Sam's life. What happened to Sam? Something more happened to him. Something more immediate happened to him. Sam found the secret to the Christian life. Sam found what's missing in the Christian life. Meet Samantha. I'm trying to keep the S thing going, just thinking that maybe that'll work. 
Samantha has always felt the weight of her sin and has always felt the weight of God's holiness in her life. She has never known a day that that hasn't been the case. Those closest to her would say, quote, Samantha is an introspective person. She's in her head a lot. She is preoccupied with spiritual growth, keeping the law and doing ministry. She seems constantly, she seems to constantly check and manage her spiritual life. And oh, she is fairly regularly spiritually depressed a lot, end quote. But those not close to her would say, she's so holy. She's an inspiration. She's a spiritual giant. Meet Steve. Steve is the one who introduced Sam to the something more in the Christian life, to what's missing in the Christian life. He disciples Sam. He mentors Sam. He spiritually advises Sam. Sam, or Steve, believes. He lives. He preaches. He teaches. He trains and personally embodies something more in the Christian life to what's missing in the Christian life. But then Steve does something he never dreamed he could ever do. Something far worse than anything he's ever done in his life. Something he's always said to himself and said to those closest to him and said to those in his accountability groups and said to those in his leadership, mentoring, apprenticeship groups. That will never, ever happen to me. Now he's like completely traumatized because he has no categories for what happened to him. He has no categories for his spiritual failure. He has no categories for his new capability of evil. He doesn't know what to do. This is the last one. Shelley. Shelley believes that people are basically good. So if someone does something really bad, it must be because somewhere in their past, they had something bad, really bad, happen to them that led to the badness coming out of them. But then Shelley did something really, really bad, and she's never had anything really bad happen to her. Her view of human nature was crushed. Her view of herself shattered. She doesn't know how to see the world, how to see herself, and how to navigate it anymore. So here's my question for you, and it's just really, really simple, and I do want you to answer this. Are you sure? Are you absolutely positive Are you absolutely convinced that you're ready for Romans 7? Are you ready to enter into the mystery of life change in Romans 7? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is Romans 7, 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I had the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So God, we ask that you would speak us back to life again. We ask that you would help us, help us navigate this passage. So would you give light to the mind? Would you give realness to the heart? And oh, Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you enable us? Would you empower us? Uh, would you grant a specific breakthrough, not only in understanding this passage, but understanding ourselves that is part of the mystery of life change. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so once upon a time, there was a time when families used to get together in the living room and watch TV together. It was an incredible time in those days, and just, because, just for, for, for sake, I need to say this. Every generation thinks they're more righteous than the other one, so please. That generation that, that we now look back and say, gosh, do you remember those times when we used to sit around and watch TV together? Well, you know what the generation used to say? Do you remember those times when we used to sit around and listen to the radio together? Those heathens that listened and watched TV, right? So every generation thinks they're more righteous than the other. But there was a time when people used to gather and sit in a living room and look at a box. And they would look at the box, and one of the most famous shows that they would watch was some show that I got to see the reruns when I was little called I Love Lucy. Now, uh, Lucy has a husband named Ricky. Ricky comes home from work one day, finds his wife crawling around in the living room on her hands and knees. He asks, what are you doing? She says, I lost, I'm looking for my earrings. I lost my earrings. Ricky responds, you lost your earrings in the living room? No, Lucy says, I lost them in the bedroom, but the light is much better out here. <laughs> Classic Lucille Ball, if you've watched that show. Here's the point. When, when it comes to the mystery of life change, we prefer to look for answers where the light is much better, where it's more comfortable, where we seem to be more in control. Romans 7 is none of those things. None of them. But Romans 7 is where life change is lost and life change is found. So if you are able in these next 20 minutes to hang in there in a very <clears throat> sometimes complex passage and hang in there and think hard, perhaps, just maybe, you'll find life change again. 
Are you with me? Okay, here we go. Um, How does Romans 7 help us with the mystery of life change? Here's the answer. Romans 7 explains you and me. Romans 7 helps you know you. Romans 7 helps you understand you. Romans 7 is ancient psychology. It's ancient psychology before there was psychology of the Christian life, of the Christian experience. It's ancient wisdom about how you work and why you are the way you are and why you do the way you do and why you feel the way you feel, the way you think, the way you think, and the way you trust, the way you trust, and the way you will, the way you will, and the way you relate, the way you relate. Romans 7 gets you. Romans 7 understands you. Romans 7 is here to help you know you. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible says two great things, and we're focusing on one, we're always doing two. If a life is going to change, there has to be two wonderful, epic, cosmic, ultimate realities present at the same time for change to happen. Here, I'm giving you the mystery of change right now, summarized from the Bible. If there is to be life change in your life, you have to have two things at work like pistons working together, two things that are interconnected, they cannot be separated, two things that are symbiotic powers in life change. You ready? The first is you have to understand yourself. The second is you have to encounter Jesus. There it is. So really, we don't really need to go on anymore for the next couple of weeks. Romans 7 is here to do the first Romans 8 is designed to do the second. But notice Romans 7, Paul couldn't wait, though. He had to get you there at the very end. He finally had to say, who's going to rescue us? He had to get to Jesus. And then he just blows that whole thing up. What a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus. He ends it there. It's like everything's moving to there, and then Romans 8, he kicks it out and tells you what that means. Understanding yourself, having you explain to you, is crucial for you finding change. There is no change without it. So if you're the type of person that that wants to stick your head in the sand when someone wants to tell you something about you, like a spouse or a child or a friend, or you just can't face it. Your head will be stuck in the sand and you will never change. So here we go. You ready? Uh, The Bible isn't alone in saying this. All mental health experts say this today. You have to understand yourself. You have to know what's going on with yourself. You've got to figure out what's happening. Uh, Did you know that Baylor's athlete, do you know that a trainer for an athletic team used to be a trainer? Well, those days are gone. Now we have teams of trainers. Do you know what Baylor has just done? It's now the new, and I don't know if it's on the cutting edge, but it might be one of the first. Now on the Baylor Athletic Trainer team is a group of mental health experts. Do you know Scott Scott and White, or Baylor Scott and White, whatever that hospital is called nowadays, they have just hired a whole team of mental health experts. Do you know that um, there are waiting lists for every major... um, 
psychiatrists and psychologists months out to get new patients. If you want to be in a field to make a difference as a Christian, I say go into psychology. The harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. My daughter's doing that. Great thinkers and theologians, though, for thousands of years have been saying this. There is no life change without understanding yourself. There is no life change without you knowing who you are. Uh, Job has said this. Jeremiah has said this. Solomon has said this. Uh, St. Paul has said this. Augustine has said this. Luther has said this. Calvin has said this. John Owen has said this. Jonathan Edwards has said this. And Jeff Hatton says this. Oh, yeah. I want you to think of your overwhelming emotions. So I want you to grab your overwhelming emotions. What are they for you? Is it anger? Is it stress? Is it fear and anxiety? Is it depression? Is it addiction? Uh, is it this, this narcissistic self-elevation you just can't get yourself down the elevator on? I want you to think of your overwhelming, painful emotions. I want you to think of them as smoke right now. Smoke, smoke. And maybe one day or for a long string of days, you have smelled smoke in yourself. You smelled smoke in your home. But you ignore it. But then it just starts stinging your eyes and your eyes start watering. You're trying to have a conversation with somebody and <coughs> you can't stop coughing. You start eating your food and you start tasting the smoke in your food and you finally say, I've got to do something about the smoke. So you go over and you open the windows and you turn on the fans and it's a temporary fix. But eventually the smoke just completely overwhelms you. It takes over your life. If you are going to find any real change with the smoke in your life, what must you do? You have to find the fire. You have to go where the source of the smoke is and find the fire. That's producing all my smoke. Romans 7 is taking you to the fire that produces all the smoke in your life to help you understand you. So if you're a Christian, what do you need to understand about you? That's what Romans 7 is saying. Listen, if you're a Christian, I'm going to sit you down and I'm going to say, this is what you need to understand about you. Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, the greatest psychologist that ever lived, he sits down and he says to you, this is what you need to understand about you. Are you ready? Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Now, actions is a global word. Actions is a comprehensive word. Actions means this. I do not understand my own thinking. I do not understand my own feeling. I do not understand my own willing. I do not understand my own desiring. I do not understand my own trusting. I do not understand my own loving. I do not understand my own doing. I do not understand my own relating. I do not understand. For I do not do what I want, literally what I most want. I don't do what I most want, but I do the very thing I hate or most hate. Verse 19, look at that one. For I do not do the good I want, most want, but the evil I do not want, in other words, what I most hate, is what I keep on doing. Paul is saying, oh my word, 
I have two selves. I have two selves in me. He is saying the Christian has some kind of splitness in personality. Sometimes we want this. Sometimes we want that. Sometimes we want to be this. Sometimes we want to be that. Sometimes we want to think, feel, will, do, live, love, trust, that. Sometimes we want to think, feel, live, do, will, trust, that. Robert Louis Stevenson is right. Inside every Christian is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And you just need a potion to see it. And we'll get to the potion. Because God has given a potion to help you see the Mr. Hyde who hides and who's hideous within you. And it takes a potion to bring him out. And guess what that potion is? And we'll get to this. It's called the law. For the Christian, it reveals Mr. Hyde. If you are a Christian, what do you need to understand about you? Before we look at the, well, let's look at this. What do you need to understand about you? Romans 7 says this about you. Here you are. Here's what you need to understand. You are a conflicted self. You are a divided self. You are a split self. This explains you. Before we look at the implications of being a conflicted self, I know some of you are not convinced that a Christian is a conflicted self. Or you believe that a conflicted self, a conflicted Christian experience, is a sub-Christian experience that needs to be overcome. It's a sub-level spiritual existence and life that you need to have victory over and you need to prevail over and you need to be delivered from. In other words, you believe that the conflicted Christian is missing something. You believe the conflicted Christian needs something more. And I know you're there. I, used, I thought this way for a long time. So I'm not saying, okay, now I've arrived and you haven't, you loser. I'm just going to push you a little bit because I know how you think. Here's my first response, and I'm going to channel my church history professor from Dallas Theological Seminary. All right, he has studied every spiritual movement in the history of the church. He has studied every major significant spiritual leader in the history of the church, and he's not only done it for years, he's done it for decades. He would tell us, he told us when we were a bunch of pastors, he would sit here and he would do this to us. He'd say, he he'd actually did this. He said, gentlemen and ladies, do you feel like something is missing in your life? And we all like look up at him. Uh, do you feel a void in your Christian life? Do you long for something more in your life? And we're all going, heck yeah. And then he says this, any spiritual leader can tell you that. 
and then sell you a bag of spiritual tricks. Is something missing in your life? Do you need something more in your Christian life? And he said, of course you do. It's called glory. It's called heaven. You're not home yet. You're always going to have a hole in your heart. You're always going to have a void in the Christian life. You're always going to be a conflicted self. My second response is this. Look at Romans 7, 14 through 25. This is present Paul. This is not past Paul. So now I'm going to look at, push, push you a little more biblically, theologically. In other words, Paul, this is Paul's Christian experience. This is Paul as an apostle. This is not past Paul when he was Pharisee, Saul. This is Paul as a, an apostle and a Christian. How do I know this? Because I want you to look at the verb tenses in Romans 7. They change. In verses 7 through 13, they're past tense verbs. Because Paul is giving a theological testimony to his personal conversion. His personal conversion is recorded in Acts. He gives the personal encounter with Jesus. Here in 7 through 13, he's given a theological reflection on his experience. Experiences happen to everybody. The issue is, what do they mean? Is your experience indigestion or is your experience an internal call? Paul is describing theologically in 7 through 13 when he was coming to conversion to Jesus, what the law did to him and how it led him to Jesus. And now in 14 through 25, he shifts to present Paul, present tense, present Christian, present apostle. Spurgeon's and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, two of probably the greatest preachers that ever lived, their go-to scholar for Romans was an ancient Scot named Robert Haldine who lived in the late 1700s and wrote this commentary probably in the early 1800s. He says, Robert Haldine says, Paul's I myself, in verses 14 through 25, where Paul says, I myself, couldn't be any clearer. He refers to himself in the present tense, present Paul, almost 40 times in these verses. He goes on to say, if language has meaning, it has to be present Paul. Or just throw language out the window and you just interpret it any way you want. Why are Christians a conflicted self? Why are Christians not? Why are we not? This is the question. Why are we not a continuous spiritual self on a victory march? Why are we not this? Why are we a conflicted self? Why are we not a continuous self, a continuous spiritual self on a victory march, getting better and better, holier and holier, sinning less and less? Why are we a conflicted self? Number one, it's this. You know this is true. You absolutely know this is your experience. You know, and I know, because I know you and I know myself, that those of us that think you're on a continuous spiritual self on a victory march, you know 
That's not true. You really do. And someone needs to tell you. You know in your gut your experience never matches it. You try like heck to make it match. And you're going on to everything and everything to try to get to that deliverance point, to activate that continuous self. But you know, in reality, you are a conflicted self. Now, the question is why? Why is this the case? Here's what's happening. Remember in Romans 6, we saw this last week. Romans 6 describes everyone on the planet as a zombie, meaning that we're physically alive but spiritually dead. This zombie has, is one person with one nature. And that zombie nature is described by Paul throughout Romans in a multiplicity of ideas and images. Ideas and images like the sin, the flesh, uh, the old self, the body of sin, the body of death, the sinful nature. Nothing good lives within me. That is in my sinful nature. He describes it as the edemic self. He describes it as the law of sin or the power of the sin. We could add language like it's the collapsed self. It's the non-self. It's the false self. Now, when someone becomes a Christian, they exit. When you become a Christian, you exit the zombie apocalypse. You come out of the zombie apocalypse. I mean, Paul describes it this way in Romans 6. You died to the realm of the sin. You died to the dark powers of the sin, the death, and ultimate evil. You're no longer in its captivity. You're no longer in its domination. You're no longer in its sphere. You're no longer in its kingdom. You're no longer in its realm. You've been taken out. And how did this happen? The answer that Paul gave us last week was real clear. By Jesus' death. Remember? 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, in other words, all of us that have been connected to Jesus, if you've been connected to Jesus by faith, if you've been united to Jesus by faith, now, whatever he is, and whoever he is, and whatever he's done is now yours. So he goes on to say, Paul, do you not know that you've been united to Jesus into his death and into his resurrection? So in other words, Jesus didn't just have an, any kind of death. He didn't have a death like you and I have. He had, a, he had a different kind of death. He had a sin-killing death. He had an evil-killing death. He had a death-killing death. He had a zombie-killing death. A Christian is no longer a zombie. Zombie, one person, one nature, that's night. Jesus goes in and rescues you out and you are now no longer a zombie. You are now a conflicted self, one person with two natures. Oh man, a Christian is now a glorious, epic, new, conflicted self, a glorious, epic, new, divided self, a glorious, new, epic, true self. In Christ. One person, two natures. Do not miss this. You are no longer a zombie if you're a Christian. And that's a big deal. For some reason, we downplay the epic life change that this is. We downplay the massive life change this is. To not be a zombie. To be out of the zombie apocalypse, so to speak. And to be now in Christ, not in the present evil age, but 
in Christ and in the Spirit, to be in this reality, to be this conflicted person is massively life-changing. It is epic. It is unbelievable. The Christian is a new self in Christ. When Jesus left the tomb, when he left the realm of the dead, he took you with him. He gives you, in his resurrection, new life. A new human nature from his very human nature. You are no longer just and only flesh zombie. You are now flesh and what is called in Romans 8, spirit, lowercase. In the Holy Spirit, uppercase. You are a new self in Christ, however, the zombie is still attached to you. Do you see how important this is? You're no longer the zombie. You're new. But the zombie is still attached to you. You are a conflicted self. This is why Paul says at least four times, four times in this passage, at least four times for emphasis, he says, it's no longer I. It's no longer I who do it. It's no longer I the me in Christ, the true self, the new self. It's no longer I, but the sin living in me, the old self, the idemic self, the collapsed self that does it. That's breathtaking. And we'll talk about the implications of that next week. That's Romans 8. But you just need to now get to understand yourself. Romans 7 explains you, explains you. Why does understanding yourself as a conflicted self matter in life change? Here's why it matters. Let's just visit those guys again. Let's just visit them. Let's visit the ladies and the men. If you're Sue, let's say you're Sue. You don't need to painfully wonder what's wrong with you and what's happening to you. And is God punishing you? And is God abandoning you? And are you now all alone? No, you're just a Christian. You're a conflicted self. You're a divided self. You're a split self. The reason why some of these things don't go away because that flesh will never go away in this life. You can't cure you. I'll talk about that a little more because some of you are freaking out right now and I get it. You're now free to struggle against sin. You're no longer the zombie. The zombie is attached to you. So Sue, you're free now. And that's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing the conflict. If you're a zombie, there is no conflict. If there's any sort of nastiness going on and some sort of reordering and change that you want to have happen, it's flesh trying to fix flesh. And that's never, that's just a, it's a, it's an inability and an impossibility for any real life change to happen. I know some of you are still freaking out that I said that. That's fine. Come to the deal tonight, and we'll talk about all of it. There is something called common grace. There is something called the image of God in this. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But that's common, and that's common virtue. That's not true virtue, to quote Edwards. Okay, what about, um, why does understanding yourself as a conflicted self matter in life change? Well, if you're Sam, you can finally put to rest the exhausting and harmful search for something more and for something that's missing in your life. You can put that thing to rest. Glory is the something more. Glory is what's missing in your life. You're not home yet. You can start learning to build your messy life around Jesus and his salvation and not you, who you are, who you aren't, who you're supposed to become, whatever the secret is. 
In other words, you can start learning to build your life. You can start learning to trust in Jesus and his salvation and take it to the unevangelized areas of your life, the unevangelized relationships of your life, the unevangelized way you relate to money. It's taking Jesus and his salvation to the unreached areas of your life and your social being, your work, your career, whatever it is, as opposed to building your life around trying to be something more. You becoming more. You, what you're not. You. In other words, it's learning to live by faith in who Jesus is for you, not who you are for you, and not who others say you are, and not what your failure says you are. Who Jesus is for you, who he says you are. In him, not in the old self. In other words, you start learning to build your life around what Jesus has done and not what you do, don't do, will do, hopefully can do, or can activate. He's done it. In other words, you already are you. There's no becoming you. There's no something more for you. In Jesus you are finally you. Why does understanding yourself as a conflicted self matter and life change with your, if you're Samantha, you can experience the freedom of forgetting yourself. You can forget about managing your relationship with God. You can forget about managing your holiness and your sanctification and your life change. You can forget about managing how you're being used by God, whether you're, you're being used by God, how your ministry, what it looks like, what it accomplishes, is it effective? Jesus managed your relationship with God for you. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your life life change. Now listen, please, carefully. Jesus' death, it took Jesus' death to kill the zombie. You trying to deliver yourself from it will never work. It took the cross to kill sin. You and I spending our Christian life focusing on trying to fix this old self, this Adamic self, this sin that lives within me is an exercise in spiritual depression and futility and exhaustion. You can't. So you're like, so what do you do? Just let, are we back to that question last week? Let sin reign that grace may increase. Good question. Next week. That's next week. All right? But right now, it took Jesus to deal with him, not you. Who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says? The answer is, not me. And that means now, not you. So if there is any sort of dying to self, you know what that means? It means learning to not Live your life in your old self, but learning to now live your life in your true self. That's what that means. We'll talk about that. I'm getting way, way ahead, but I'm giving you a sneak preview, a coming attraction for next week. If Jesus' resurrection, if it took Jesus' resurrection to give you new life, and it still does, you can't raise yourself from the dead. You can't make yourself alive. It's learning to live in the life he's already given you. Do you see that? Okay, why does understanding yourself as a conflicted self matter in life change? Because if you're Steve, 
You don't have to be traumatized. There is a category for your spiritual failure. It's called Romans 7. A Christian will always be two things at the same time. Evil and righteous. Sinful and justified. Broken and loved. A messy person and forgiven. I mean, we could go down the line. A new self and an old self. You are a conflicted self. All right, here we go. Sam Alberry is a pastor of St. Mary's Church in Maidenhead, England. He wrote, Is God Anti-Gay? And other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. Well, there we have it. In an interview in Modern Reformation uh, with one of my favorite contemporary theologians, a guy named Mike Horton, Alberry said this to Horton, For as long as I've had sexual feelings, they've been same-sex sexual feelings. This is a pastor. They became, that became apparent to me as a teenager going through puberty. It took me a while to put the pieces together and recognize what was going on, but that has been my and continues to be my experience. Horton asked, well, you must meet people who are a little uneasy with the suggestion that Christians can't continue to struggle with same-sex attraction. We all have our sins that we struggle with, but for whatever reason, this is the one that should go away. At least, that's what we want you to tell the youth group. How do you respond to people who really wish you weren't going to continue to struggle with same-sex attraction? See what Horton's asking? How, are you gonna, how do you tell people? You, you have this confliction in you. How, how do you tell people? What do you tell people now? That you're going to have the struggle for the rest of your life? Alberry says, we have to take our expectation of what the Christian life will be from the New Testament. The presence of the battle, in other words, what we're calling the conflicted self. The presence of the battle with sin, what we're calling the conflicted self is only unique to the Christian. Continue. Is actually the assurance that the Spirit is at work within me. The person who says you shouldn't be fighting sin if you're a Christian makes me wonder if they're actually fighting sin. Or if they've just run up the white flag and let sin take over. For me, the evidence that the Spirit is at work is not that there's no battle, but there's a mightier battle than there ever was. And now I have new affections, a new heart, a new self at war with the old for the first time. Sam Sam Attleberry. Romans 7 explains you. It explains you. Understand yourself. You are a conflicted self. How do you now live with yourself? (laughs) How do you now live with this conflict called the Christian life? next week.